You know, every religion of the world has some idea of a priest. All of the great religions of the world have some idea of a holy man or holy woman who is kind of set apart for ordinary people like us to be able to connect to a God that is anything but ordinary. It takes different forms in different religions of the world, but it's found in just about every religion, certainly that I've studied, all the major religions of the world, include an idea of a priest. As I was thinking about this message, I thought about an experience that Susie and I had with a priest back about 12 years ago, and uh, we visited her homeland of India, and after visiting some of her extended family in South India, we voyaged up to North India, and we went to Calcutta, and we wanted to go there because that's where Mother Teresa established her home for the dying and her Sisters of Charity and all the great work that she did there for so many decades and still continues to go on now under the... um, the leadership of the Sisters of Charity. So we wanted to go visit them in Calcutta. But before we did, we were walking through Calcutta and we came up to another beautiful building and uh, we were offered a tour of it. And we went into this building and we learned it was kind of a temple of sorts for Hindus and we were being led by this Brahmin priest. Now a Brahmin is the highest caste of Hindus. And that Hindu caste system that ranks people, gives people certain worth. Brahmins are the highest. So this Brahmin priest was showing us around this building. I frankly don't remember much of the building until we got to a very small room that was probably five feet by ten feet. And we were kind of pushed into this room. And we quickly saw that there were about 50 people there already. Remember this, Susie? About 50 people kind of clamoring, looking forward in a room that's about five by ten, and some of them had handfuls of rice, and others had pieces of fruit, and and others had coins that they were tossing over this ledge, and we saw through a crease in the people what they were throwing it at, and it was a six-inch statuette of the goddess Kali, which is the Hindu goddess of destruction and wrath. And they were offering their sacrifices to the goddess Kali, seeking to appease her. And it was frenetic. It was a crazy moment. And they're all yelling and they're trying to wrestle for position to, to get in there. And Susie and I, our heart is starting to beat faster and faster. And uh, she grabs my arm. We're arm to arm at this point, And we're trying to shuffle our way out of there as quickly as we can. We get out and our heart is still beating really, really fast as this priest continues to give us a tour through the building and we kind of get out of there as quickly as we can but before we leave the priest asks us would you like to make a gift would you like to give an offering to the goddess Kali no well then would you like to give an offering to the work that we are doing for the poor out there well what are you doing for the poor out there We're making sacrifices for their sins. Then no, no. He was very disappointed in us, and we left, and we we prayed, and gathered ourselves, and we went over to Mother Teresa's home for the dying, where we met Sisters of Charity and other volunteers going out into the streets 
to those filthy people, picking them up, bringing them into her home for the dying, and nursing them, caring for them with the most basic form of dignity, praying for them and reading the scriptures to them before they died in their final hours. The contrast couldn't have been starker. But every religion of the world has some kind of priest. And oftentimes, the story that I just gave is not exceptional. If you look back and read the stories of the great Central American religions, the Aztecs and the Incas and the Toltecs all had priests. And on one occasion, the Aztecs, for example, sacrificed some 20,000 people before a pyramid in which primitive cardiologists came in and removed hearts as a sacrifice to their gods for the priests. Across world religions, many priests have been corrupt and cruel and hypocritical. And yet, this idea of a priesthood, here's the shocking thing, the idea of a priesthood actually was not invented by man, but by God himself. Hmm. Why is that? How could that be, given the fact that we know of so many stories both today and throughout history where priests have been cruel or corrupt? How is it that God would invent this system? Why would he do that? Well, here's why. We all know that there is an issue between us and God, don't we? That issue is called sin. And sin results in what is called alienation between us and a holy God who was unwilling to fellowship with us in our sin. A moral breach has occurred, and this separation has now occurred such that we need someone to intercede on our behalf to bring us to God. And when God invented the idea of priests in the Old Testament, these priests were responsible for being mediators, intercessors, who would bring the needs of the people to a holy God who was unwilling to fellowship with people in the midst of their great sin. The great London Times journalist G.K. Chesterton once quipped that the only empirically verifiable doctrine of Christianity is original sin. You need only look into the mirror and you see it. You need only read the newspaper, and you see it. You need only look out and observe the world for a single day, and we see the reality that our original ancestors fell from grace, and we've done a pretty good job following their example. I see it myself in the mirror each and every day. And so people across the world, across all religions, have understood this, that something has gone terribly wrong, and there is a need for someone who is holy and set apart to stand in the way and to lead us to God when we've lost our way. So the Bible speaks to that in a number of different places, but notably starting in the book of Leviticus chapter 4. So you maybe have already turned there, third book in the Bible, Leviticus chapter 4. Or if not, you can follow along with me on the screen. Leviticus 4, the first three verses, provides this expectation of the priest. It says this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally 
in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does one of them, or if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. There's always been this acknowledgement that there needs to be the shedding of blood for forgiveness, a cleansing of something that is clean to cleanse over those of us who are not clean. And this was the system that God put in place early on with these initial priests. And priests back then were responsible for receiving these offerings of worship sometimes and also offerings of sacrifice because of one's sin, seeking a holy God for forgiveness. Then there's a long explanation there in Leviticus 4 about different sins that needed different appointed offerings. And then it goes on to say in Leviticus 5, if that person is too poor to offer a bull, then he can offer a spotless lamb. And if too poor to offer a spotless lamb, then he can offer two turtle doves or two pigeons if he was merely a peasant. Can you think of any peasants in the scriptures who offered two Pigeons, two turtle doves, as an offering to God? Anyone? Mary and Joseph come to mind, right? At the birth of their firstborn son, Jesus, they say, in response to all that God has given, our firstborn son, we say thank you to God. And we, we, we give something of ourselves thanking God for all that he has given. So they're ordinary peasants, they're quite poor, but even if they're too poor to offer two pigeons, it goes on in Leviticus 5, If he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. That's just a little bag of flour. If he can't afford anything else, simply bring a little bag of flour to God. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as its memorial portion and burn this on the altar on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin he has committed in any one of these offerings, and he shall be forgiven. Deal with the sin problem. Everyone has this recognition that we have guilt that needs to be dealt with. This was God's way of helping the people deal with with that feeling of guilt. And the remainder shall be for the priest as in the grain offering. So you see, the priesthood actually was initially God's idea, a way of dealing with human sin and the need for payment to a holy God who in his nature simply cannot tolerate our sin. He's different than us. He's wholly different than us. He's set apart, he's unique, he's completely perfect. And he's unique. Now, there's a reason that many people don't read the book of Leviticus, right? And I just gave you a few. It's kind of complex. Are you still with me? Okay? Many people skip over the book of Leviticus for these verses that I just noted and many, many others. And likewise, many other people skip over the book of Hebrews chapters 5 through 10, Because they are amongst the most difficult chapters in the entire New Testament to understand. But I believe in you. And so we're studying them together. 
over these few weeks because I believe that we can understand this. And I believe that in the process we can understand that the Old Testament is not this random book with no connection to the New Testament. But indeed, rather, what we have in Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifice system, the fulfillment of the Old Testament priests, and the fulfillment of the Old Covenant in the New Covenant that he brought. And in order to fully understand that, we need some of that Old Testament background. You still with me? I believe in us in this church that, that, that we can get these, we can understand these, and we can lose some of this feeling that many people have that I just can't understand the Old Testament. So, for the time we have remaining here today, and with that background in mind, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5 and 7, what we're going to see is uh, the priests of old, priests then, and a little bit of explanation about them, priest now, single priest now, and your role in response to what God has provided with the priest now. Hebrews 5 one through four, to get started. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God to it, just as Aaron was. Now you look at that passage, and there's a few things to to take note of. Verse 1 notes that the high priest was chosen from among the people. He had to be one of the people and was kind of elected from among the people. Verse 4 notes as well that he is called by God. Called by God, but chosen from among the people. Priests came from a very select tribe of Jews, and they were consecrated for service to the people. They wouldn't arise from the tribes of of Benjamin, or Manasseh, or Issachar, or Judah, or Gad. They, They arose from one tribe. Anyone know what that was? The tribe of Levi. I heard someone shout out loud. The tribe of Levi. They all came from the from the Levites. And Uh, All of these priests had to come from that tribe, beginning with Aaron, and then they uh, became their own tribe. They didn't get any uh, special land allocated to them. Their land, so to speak, their inheritance, so to speak, was the worship of God. And the Levites' role was to represent the people in matters related to God. Here's an important distinction to note. Well, when you're reading your Old Testament, prophets would speak for God to the people. That's what a prophet did. He'd speak for God to the people. But a priest speaks for the people to God. A priest's responsibility was to make intercession for the people on behalf of the people, bringing their needs to a holy God. You might underline in your Bible in verse 2 the words, deal gently. The priest was responsible to deal gently with the needs of the people. He couldn't be like that Brahmin priest that I noted at the beginning who saw those people as filthy and himself somehow as separated from them, he had to deal gently with the people, have compassion for the people, because he recognized he also had great need. He also was a sinner in need of the grace of God. Now, you and I both know this is where 
pastors and priests and paid clergy get themselves into trouble all the time, don't they? Because they see themselves as holier than thou. Or other people sometimes see them as holier than thou. But God's prescription here is you are to deal gently with the people because guess what? You're one of them. And you're going to have to offer sacrifices because you are a sinner as well. Look in the mirror and I see that all the time. So there's courage and there's humility that's required of the priests. Verse 3 says that he was obligated to sacrifice, to offer sacrifice for his own failures as well as those of the people. You think of the courage of one of these priests. I mean, could you imagine some two million people at this point, and a priest is responsible for bringing their sins before a holy God whom we would tremble before. Indeed, we are right to tremble before holy God even today. To, yes, have a a sense of his great love, but also have a sense of his holiness and to tremble before him. And they bring the needs of two million people before holy God asking, would you please forgive these people? The courage of those priests to stand up. But yet also at the same time, the humility of the priests. They bring the needs of the people and they also bring their own needs. These are the ways, Lord God, that I have failed. Here's how I have failed in my marriage. Here's how I have failed in my parenting. Here's how I have failed in the way I have related to others. Lord, would you please forgive me with two, many, with two million people watching on. I, I don't know about you. I have some sympathy for those who have lots of eyes on them in a regular basis. I feel sympathy for that as you look at me this morning. Okay, or you see me at high V, or you see me around town. It's like, you better watch your P's and Q's, Adrian, because they're watching. I mean, there's a humility, though, that is required to acknowledge I have need as well. Perhaps I'm called by God for something, but what a great need I have for God to forgive me also. These were God's appointed priests of old. Their service was vital. But as we've noted repeatedly, this theme in Hebrews again and again is the superiority of Christ. Something better, someone greater is is here. There's priests then and there's priests now. And Christ is the, the one priest now who is the fulfillment of the priesthood. You go on in this passage to look at priests now in verse 5. Here's the description of Christ. Hebrews 5.5, 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence, because of his submission to God. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now there's a lot in that, but let me unpack it just a little bit as it relates to the priest, the single priest now. There are similarities, but between the old high priests 
and Jesus, the one high priest for us now. Like the priest before, Jesus did not exalt himself. He was humble. He was appointed by God. He was begotten, not made by the Father. And then he was appointed by God to serve as high priest to the people. He offers up prayers and tears. Do you know that Jesus sympathizes with you and your weakness? We have a high priest that knows what it's like to be you. That knows what it's like to be me. Knows what it's like to be tempted. Knows what it's like to go through suffering. He sympathizes with us as a good high priest before was expected to do. There's some similarities between those priests and the priests that we have. But there are some differences as well, weren't there? What tribe, again, what tribe did the priests of old come from? What is it? The Levites, right? We've talked about that already. They came from the Levites. But what tribe did Jesus descend from? Anyone? The tribe of Judah. Jesus descended from the tribe of Judah. So how do you make sense of this? That he was not a Levite, and yet he's called here the great high priest, even though he came from the tribe of Judah. Well, if you flip over two pages to Hebrews chapter 7, we'll look at that. Hebrews 7, 11 through 17. And we're going to look at a passage that has confounded many people. And it refers to Jesus' priesthood of another lineage, not from the tribe of Levi. Hebrews 7 verse 11 says this. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron, the high priest, the Levite. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from, from where? He was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has, a, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you, Jesus, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, you got all that? There's a lot in this, Okay. Has anyone ever read this passage or Hebrews 5 and said, who is Melchizedek and why is such an emphasis on that? Anyone else? Raise your hand if you've ever been perplexed by this Melchizedek. I see a few hands raised, okay? I certainly have. Now to fully understand this, we're going to give some background here today, but to fully understand this, I want to urge you to read three passages of scripture later today. Read Hebrews 7 in full. If you want to understand this connection between Melchizedek and the Old Testament, read Hebrews 7, read Genesis 14, and read Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4 is quoted three times in Hebrews 5 and 7. The book of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. And each of those passages is critical to understanding, well, what's going on here with Melchizedek. In essence, he is a king... And he is a priest. In the very earliest pages of the Old Testament, he's a king and he's a priest. And the great patriarch, Father Abraham, 
gives a tithe of his offering to Melchizedek and blesses him as a great holy man who represents God even before the Levitical priesthood was ever established by God. So here's Abraham who is acknowledging this need for God. He's acknowledging this need for intercession even before these priests were established. He's acknowledging this need to live generously before God, to give out of the abundance of our wealth proportionally to our wealth, to be generous with all that he has given, to obey God in that, and he gives a tithe of his offering to Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is interesting, but because as is noted in this passage, there's no place in the Old Testament that we're given his genealogy, which is significant because to the Hebrews, genealogy was very, very important. Ancestry mattered so much to the Hebrews. And no ancestry is listed. And so what the author of Hebrews does here is saying, is say, Melchizedek is a type. He's a figure, like Jesus, that was, in one sense, without genealogy himself, right? Without ancestry, he was before all time. Now, of course, Melchizedek has a father and mother. He was born and he died. But that's not listed in Genesis. And the author of Hebrews takes advantage of this to say, Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, not of the line of the Levites, but of a different lineage, and his priesthood shall last forevermore. The author is saying the Levitical system had to be replaced by something greater because still today, though we're not under the Old Testament law, friends, we still need a priest. We still today need a priest who would intercede for us in our weaknesses and who would bring our sin to a holy God who would willingly forgive us of all of our failures. Can you give thanks that we have a high priest who is without ancestry, who has given himself once for all time, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you and me to God? We have this great high priest in Jesus who intercedes for us, who sympathizes with the needs of the people, but yet at the same time he is able to save us to the uttermost because he is the son of God who was without failure, without sin. He can identify with you and me, and yet at the same time he can save us because he was God most high. I'm inspired by that. Anyone else? You with me here? I know this is a lot, but it's good, good stuff. When you begin to see how the Old Testament dots are connected with these New Testament realities that we get to live in today. Let's look at just well, one more passage. If you turn back well, once more to uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, there's a question though, that we have to ask out of these two important verses I've underlined two different lines in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, and I encourage you to do the same. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience. Underline, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Have you ever read that passage and you say, what is going on here? He learned obedience? 
He had to be made perfect. The, the Savior had to learn obedience. He had to be made perfect. What are we to make of that? What a perplexing passage this is. Perhaps you can imagine your inquisitive daughter coming to you with a tear going down her face and even asking the question, does this mean that Jesus was less than perfect before this time? Does this mean that Jesus had to learn to obey God that before that time he didn't obey God before the cross he didn't obey God mama what do you say what do you say to that that's quite a passage quite a question that would come right out of this passage and there have been some liberal scholars who have hijacked these words to suggest that Jesus actually shared not just in our humanity but that he shared in our sinfulness there have been liberal scholars who have suggested that he shared in our moral imperfection in order to fit the old saw that you can't really identify with someone who struggles with drunkenness unless you struggle with drunkenness as well. Or you can't really help someone who's been divorced unless you've gone through divorce too. Or you can't really help someone who's struggling with drugs unless you've been there too. I mean, have you heard that? Oh, that's so false. That's so false because the Bible affirms over and over again that Jesus was sinless. He was complete sinless in his humanity. He never sinned. He was completely without imperfection at all. And yet he spoke regularly about marriage and divorce even though he was never married or divorced. He spoke regularly about drunkenness even though he was never drunk himself. He spoke about things that we need to deal with just as we can speak about those things as well. The Bible says repeatedly, he knew no sin. Rather, the way you want to understand this passage is the word made perfect comes from the Greek word teleothos. And teleothos gives us telos. Maybe you've heard the word telos. It means final, finished, complete, perfect. So being made perfect here has the sense of he finished the race that was set out for him. He completed the great task of God that was given to him. You can imagine a marathon runner going across the final line, staggering, and his legs are about to give out, but he says, oh, I completed it. Maybe the words of Jesus on the cross even ring a bell. It is, it's finished. Being made perfect, it is, it is finished. I completed what God gave to me. And learned obedience just has in mind that he learned obedience in something that he had never had to experience before. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane that he experienced something that he never experienced before. The beginning of separation from his father. It was on the Roman cross that he experienced something that he had never experienced before. The intensity of crucifixion the worst death known to man that's what he experienced and he learned obedience that he could submit to the father's will even in that again what a god we serve that he was willing to surrender and to obey even up to the garden of gethsemane and the great roman cross 
Now, all of this begs the question, so what? What difference does this make for us? What application would you have from this very high theology, Adrian? Well, I'm glad you asked. Okay, here's the so what. First and foremost, the so what is we're led to a deeper level of worship when we recognize that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. Can I get an amen? I mean, he's fulfilled the old requirements of the law. He's fulfilled the Levitical system. He has fulfilled the offering system, the sacrifice system. He is the final offering for all time. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And I don't know about you, that leads me to worship. The, so, the other so what is we get to learn. We get to learn how the New Testament is tied together with the Old Testament. But, but finally and most importantly, what I get out of this passage is our role really comes from that great old children's song. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to. Who wants me to stop singing now? <laughs> I asked Matt if he needed another male vocalist, and for some reason he said no. Can't figure out why. Listen, we, we teach our boys this, this song. The only way you're going to be happy in Jesus, trust and obey. There's no life outside of that. There's no real joy in the Lord outside of surrender. There will be no joy for us. There will be no fruit of the Spirit for us outside of obedience. And it's as Jesus endured the Garden of Gethsemane, which is better called the Garden of Suffering, and he surrendered completely to the Father. As we look to him, so also we can say in the midst of our Garden of Suffering, whatever it might be, God, may your will be done. Not my will, your will be done, God. And it's as we look at Jesus, realizing that he obeyed the Father all the way to that old rugged cross which he didn't want to go to he had to wrestle through that but he obeyed as we look to our great high priest who obeyed all the way to the roman cross we say yeah i'll obey what is it that you believe jesus is asking you to obey right now where is it that you would sense, perhaps over the past weeks or months, you're holding God at bay in this one corner of life? You say to him, I'll give you this 90%, but I'm not going to give you this 10% of my life. I'm holding on to that. It's going to be different for each and every one of us, but for some of us, it might be applying what Brian talked about two weeks ago. Learning to rest. Obedience to Sabbath. For others, it's going to be applying the clear teaching of the scripture that we are to give to the church that feeds us to, to tithe or at the very least to begin offering a sacrifice to God, to the church that feeds us in proportion to our wealth that we begin to say, yes, God, I know it's clear that outside of generosity there is no life. So God, I will follow you. I will follow you even if it's difficult. For some, it might re realize that 
that, that Jesus, as he obeyed the Father, was rejected by friends, rejected by family members. And as you obey the Father, you realize it might mean some rejection by people you love. For others, it'll be bending your knee to Christ for the very first time that you just say, I'm going to acknowledge you as Lord. You be my king. It's clear that you did die and rise from the grave, even for me, and you're inviting me, you're calling me, I will obey. And for still others who have been putting God at bay, holding him away, saying, no, it's too embarrassing to be baptized. I've been waiting for too long of a time What will people think if they know that I've been waiting for decades? It may be that God is inviting you to obey him in baptism. Even next Sunday or the following Sunday in the venue. That you would say as a believer, as a follower of Christ, I am going to obey as a follower of Christ. I don't know what it will be for you. But as I look at the obedience of Jesus in this passage... I am forced to reckon with the fact that he obeyed when it was difficult. And discipleship happens for us when we say yes to God when it's most difficult. He is the great high priest who has given his all for us, who intercedes for us today to bring us to the Father. And the only proper response is to trust and obey. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, I'm not sure what you're calling my brothers and sisters to this morning. But I know that your word cuts me to the core. And I know that your son Jesus, great sacrifice and great example through much struggle and toil and many tears and much blood calls me to ask the question, where have I not yet surrendered? Where have I not fully given myself to you? I'm not sure what garden of suffering God is asking you to trust him in today. But I pray that you would know that he is very near to you in the midst of that suffering. And as you surrender to him, you will find him faithful to give you grace and mercy in this your time of need. I'm not sure where God is calling you to a higher level of obedience today. But as he is whispering to you through his son Jesus Christ, as he is whispering to you today, do not harden your hearts. Obey. Submit. Say yes to higher levels of obedience. To the Christ. To the Son of God. To the great high priest gave his all for us, who empathized with us, who intercedes for us, who draws us still today into the loving arms of our Father, in whose name we pray and God's people say.